All right, so we've been in a little series on dominion and what that means. I told you it's our main purpose in this world, Genesis chapter 1. God created man in the image of God, female and male and female, he created them, and he said, let them have dominion. So we've been talking about what that means, what that means. It's essential to the Christian life, and it's essential to a church's um, efforts, really. You've got to know what that is. And we've talked about the tools of dominion that God has given us, everything from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the filling of the Holy Spirit, language, reason. Um, covenantal relationships, our own unique natures as male and female, our own roles, the hierarchies within those covenantal institutions, all the tools he's given us to accomplish our mission. And then the second week, we talked about the, the nature or the, the characteristics of the dominion mandate. It's not centralized. It's decentralized. It is global. It is local. We talked about all of those various aspects, et cetera, et cetera. Today, I want to do what's I'm sort of almost like an, an excursus on dominion, and that's to discuss the Psalms and dominion, because there is a crucial link. There's a crucial link between music, hymns, songs, and especially the Psalms, and our mission to exercise dominion uh, in the name of King Jesus in our lifetimes on earth. And so I want to begin by reading, <coughs> or perhaps singing, not me, but maybe y'all. Stand up, for, stand up for Jesus. Who knows that song from their childhood? Stand up for Jesus. Remember last week we contrasted the dominion mandate with Neil Armstrong's uh, dominion of the moon. Was that in my class or was that here? That was here. That was here. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, American flag. And I contrasted that with what the Christian call for dominion is, and that is we are taking steps in the name of King Jesus under the banner of Jesus. Now, of course, we're thankful for our, our nation, and we're thankful for our legs and whatnot, but there is a clear difference between a humanistic dominion and a, a Christocentric dominion. I think this song captures what a Christocentric dominion is all about. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Can I have it on that screen too or no? No, it's just a beautiful Italian Riviera scene, I think. It might be, is that, is that over south towards Homa? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. One day, one day. All right, we're not getting up there, so I'll have to turn and read it. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye... Soldiers, trigger warning, ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. When? When must it not suffer loss? Thank you. From victory unto victory. What does that expression mean? It means we enjoy victory and then we enjoy more victory and then more victory. We grow in grace. We grow in faith. We grow in victory. His army shall he lead. Amen. He is leading that army from victory unto victory. Go back to the earlier screen. Right? Never losing. Banner on high. Go back. Until, timestamp, adverb, until, until, so now, 
until every foe is vanquished. What is the last enemy to be defeated? Death. And then the end shall come. Why, though? On what basis? Well, because Christ is Lord. Just as they said as they went forth from Acts. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Gospel of the kingdom. Right? Christ, as Lord, is leading his army, the church militant, in time, in space, in history, to accomplish the dominion mandate, the rule mandate, the subdue, fill, the earth mandate. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto fulfilling the mandate that was given to us in Genesis chapter 1. He is the new Adam. The old Adam failed. The new Adam will not fail. And that's why we sing awesome songs like this. Right? Jordan, did you have a question? Yeah, I just uh, noticed that the version I sang growing up, growing up was, uh, and Christ is Lord indeed, uh, which is implied that Christ is only Lord indeed after the uh, <laughs> Well, maybe, yeah. Maybe. And, then, and then Christ will be Lord indeed. Yeah, I wonder if that was meant that anything by that. But, but yeah, Christ is Lord, present tense, victory under victory. Now, we all sang these songs growing up, and I, but I feel like we're all just finally coming to understand what the songs even mean. Like It's like you, you sing songs that you, you inherited from your heritage, and it takes you a whole lifetime just to learn what the songs were always saying back in Sunday school, back in preschool, right? That's kind of unfortunate, I guess. Right? But now, now let's contrast this with another song. And I mean no offense by contrasting it with this song. I don't have a problem with this song. But I want you to at least see the difference. This one, by the way, was written in the 1800s by a, a reformed minister. <laughs> this one here is, it was written in the 1920s by a southern gospel uh, singer. And it goes like this. Some glad morning... When this life is over, I'll fly away. (laughs) To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. Now, that's true. That's true. I don't like to think of my death as a glad morning. I feel like that goes against how the Bible presents it. But I understand what he means. Okay? Uh, I'll fly away. I'll fly away. Oh, glory I'll fly away when I die. Do you see the contrast here? These are two different perspectives on biblical teaching. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days. Cue Coldplay, ambient synth. <laughs> Glory. One day, if there's anyone here that would like to surrender something to the Lord, lights down, I see that hand, I see that hand. Today could be the last day. This is, I'm mimicking this because this is the spirit of all of that. It is that one day, oh, that one day, oh, these weary days, then we'll fly away, glory, hallelujah, to a land where joy shall never end. Oh, if only I could escape this God-forsaken planet. Right? 
I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly away when I die. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Yeah, when I die. Hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Now, I understand the historical context in which these songs were written. And I think I know why they came about and why the American church, by and large, transitioned from stand up from stand up for Jesus to one weary one day will fly away from this weary god forsaken hopeless place and it had a lot to do with wait what prohibition, prohibition. <laughs> oddly enough they're connected they're very much connected and i don't have time to unpack this if you want to you can listen to all my history lectures at the academy but essentially the Enlightenment um, birthed new hope in man, um, a hope that had once been alive in the times of, of Athens. And, um, and, and that old Greek philosophy, that Greek worldview was uh, rebirthed a little earlier than the Enlightenment. They call that the Renaissance. And then the Enlightenment. And the world thinks of that as a time of... of uh, high hopes and dawning uh, um, new frontiers for man, small steps, big steps for mankind in the Enlightenment. And this, of course, uh, evolved over a period of time through the Industrial Revolution, new technologies, new science, new developments. All, of course, were actually blessings from God for dominion. They were seeing them as the fruits of man's um, reason and man's uh, might and man coming together under the banner of man. In that particular time, coming together under the banner of nationalism. So you start to see uh, hope born in centralizing governments. You see it first with Napoleon, who centralizes all the various kingdoms of France and turns it into what we now think of as France. Spain, same thing. There was no Spain before this time period. Columbus didn't sail for Spain. There was no Spain There were kingdoms, kingdoms of Christendom. But the kingdoms of Christendom were being overthrown and centralized with uh, central planners, central elites, uh, men like Napoleon, and eventually men like Hitler. And in our country, I do believe, men like Lincoln. He had that same spirit. And so what was happening in in the West, in Europe, was centralization, efficiency, government, industrial revolution, and then the Romantic period, of course, uh, a little bit of a backlash from the period of reason, was, was saying, you know, man, man can, can reach these new heights and man can recapture what we lost, you know, and, uh, and build back a world better again. Now, one of the most famous writers in that time period is Mary Shelley. Y'all know what she wrote? Mary Shelley was a revolutionist, um, which many people in those days were. They, they believed the spirit of the French Revolution. They held to its ideals of equality and, and solidarity, all, all of which were just abstract ideas that actually aren't going to save anyone. They were man's gospel, and man can do it. And they converted Notre Dame into a cathedral of reason, a, a cathedral to man. This was the spirit in the 18th century. Well, Mary Shelley, just as an interesting note, she wrote Frankenstein because she was skeptical that this was all going to turn out well. <laughs> you know, she knew, she knew how many heads were chopped off by guillotines. 
She was a little disillusioned. And so man coming together with science and technology to build a, a master race actually just creates a monster. Okay, so that's kind of the idea of Frankenstein. Well, this spirit eventually makes its way over the Atlantic, especially to the northern states. And the old puritism of the north begins to die. And what takes its place is Unitarianism, which is basically a Greco-Roman humanistic uh, philosophy. Uh, No longer a trinity, no longer an incarnate savior, no no longer atonement for sin, but more of a, you know, a force, a, a oneness. And that pretty much dominates the North. You see it earlier in men like Benjamin Franklin. You know, he's a transitional peer, figure and Thomas Jefferson as well. But later it gets worse with men like Abraham Lincoln, who was certainly not a Christian, although he wasn't openly hostile to Christians like politicians today. In the South, though, they believed they were going to restore Christendom. They called it Southern Zion. They had a motto, no king but Christ. Of course, they had a wolf by its ears. You know what that wolf was? Slavery. That's right. Born out of the 18th century, built on Darwinistic um, rationale, they had that wolf by the ears. And so, when the Civil War finally broke out, both sides, the northern vision of a, of a new humanity, a Tower of Babel, a we, can, we can do it sort of a spirit, build back better, a future you can believe in, all that stuff we have today, collides with this, you know, holding on to what's left of Christendom, but we have this curse of the institution of slavery around our neck. Those two collide in the Civil War, and 50, tens of thousands of people die in bloody ways that no one had ever imagined before. No one had ever seen things like this before. You know, when they fought face-to-face at Devil's Den in Gettysburg, we're talking like bloody bayonet, point-blank range rifle fighting among people that were of the same nation. This sucked the heart out of America, and it sucked the heart out of Christians. And it was after that that this, this plague of negativity, of despair, of there's no hope for this world, began to set in in the West, especially in America. And it's in that context that you get all of these new woeful, mournful, there's hope on some yonder distant shore, but no longer is there any hope for man here. The nation had collapsed. Hopes and dreams had collapsed. You see how that, that plagues people. And then just as these, these, this despairing and this negativity is at its greatest height, we have World War I and World War II, and eventually Christians totally bail on the Victory Project. They totally bail on it. And the Schofield Bible comes out, and it presents a hopeless world, and that the only hope is when Jesus comes back the second time. And then most of us are born in that. But here's the thing. Our parents, though they were sucked into the Schofield negativity and despair, and it goes by a lot of different names. We don't have to get into all of that. Though they got sucked into that, they still sang the old songs. They still sang the Christmas songs. Kevin, I don't know if you can throw it up for me, but... I can tell you when, when one Christmas season, I'm, re, I'm, I'm singing joy to the world and it is deconstructing unknown presuppositions that I have in my mind. This is years back. 
And I didn't know exactly what was right, but I knew that what I swallowed as a child, you know, more is caught than taught. Negativity, pessimism, that's a, a, a presupposition that you swallow. It's not your teacher didn't stand up one day and articulate all of the aspects of dispensationalism to you, a theological construct to justify the negativity. He didn't do all that. You just swallow the negativity, right? <clears throat> and so I'm singing joy to the world, joy to the world. And my entire childhood, I can remember this. Like, how can there be joy to the world? What are you talking about, joy to the world? Right? I mean, I remember my pastor just about every other Sunday, why polish brass on a sinking ship? That's J. Vernon McGee quote. Why, what are we doing? Are we are them, them Christians out there arranging deck chairs on the Titanic when we need to be doing is snatching souls and loading the life rafts. And I'm singing joy to the world. Not really. I don't even, I can't figure it out. And I don't have a pastor. Y'all know my story. I don't have anybody to teach me. I have to private message people from across the country to help me understand things. And so I'm like, joy to the world. The Lord has come. God, how Right. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And uh, heaven and nature sing. Right? So now we have a song about joy to the world when Jesus comes the first time or the second time? The first time. The first time. It's a Christmas song. Moving on. Joy to the earth. Now we're getting even more specific. Joy to the earth. I thought this thing was going to burn like a Noah's flood of fire. And that we would escape like the, like the Haley's Comet folks with our Nikes on off to the mothership. <laughs> right? Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. So even the, the very fields, the rocks, they're singing joy to the earth. Joy to the earth. Let's go, Kevin. Move next slide. Not more let sins and sorrows grow. When not more let sins and sorrows? Obviously, after he comes the second time, right? No, that's not what it says. It says now in history, no more let sins and sorrows grow. And no more thorns infest the ground. That's a curse language. The curse is being rolled back. When? Now in history. He comes, he did, to make his blessings flow. Just a tiny little blessings inside my own personal heart as I wait here for the end of it all? No, as far as the curse is found. How far is that? That's the whole world. You see how I can't sing this and hold on to my childhood presuppositions. Completely deconstructed. And unfortunately, many of y'all have been brought along that uh, journey. <laughs> so, of course, we don't mean to demean people that have a, a, a bad framework or a bad worldview, but, but the ideas have consequences, though. And, and, they, and they really, they have consequences for our children and for the future of Christianity. And I think, I'm not trying to belabor this, it's not my hobby horse, I think this is absolutely essential to grasp if you're going to grasp the gospel, this is the gospel. It's not the entirety of the gospel, but if you read in Romans chapter 4 what Abraham believed, he believed the nations would be Christianized and that they'd inherit the earth. Not after history, in history. In history. 
And so there's other aspects of the gospel as well, like atonement for your sins, etc., etc., and those we all, everyone agrees on it for the most part. But um, this is an essential aspect of the gospel, and we have to believe it. Why does it matter if we believe it? Because what is the victory that overcomes the world? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. If we don't have faith in victory, then we will not overcome the world. And what happens to salt when it loses its savor? It gets trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, which is exactly what is happening to the church right now. So this is not a hobby horse. This is absolutely essential to restoring our lives and our church and our nation, this particular truth. We have to be like Abraham, who believed against all hope that these promises were true. And honestly, we have a ton of hope. I mean, I have a dominion wand in my hand right here. I, just, I help uh, people in India live Christian lives. I'm not negative. I'm positive. All right, it's amazing. So let's look at, um, <clears throat> let's go back to our, to- our co- topic of songs. You can see how these two songs are contrasted. Um, <clears throat> but if you, if you want to write down in your notes, just read A Mighty Fortress is Our God when you get a chance. All right? Just read that when you get a chance. <clears throat> and ask, was their hope off in the future alone? Or did they have hope in the present as well? Did they believe in victory in history? Or did they believe history is doomed to be won by Satan? I think it's going to be simple to see. All right? Now, moving on to the songs we sing, your worldview writes your songs, doesn't it? Your religion establishes your culture, and your worldview, your, your framework, writes the songs that you sing. And then those songs, you sing them to yourself over and over again. And what, is, what happens then? Then you are shaped by the songs. So your worldview shapes the songs, and the songs shape you and your children. This is why it's essential that we sing the right songs. And we write, in time, the right songs. And this is why... Um, if you sing perpetually moanful laments, right? this morning I'm, I'm driving to church. It's so hard for us to find good Christian music. And I'm, uh, I have a friend in Jesus. Is that the, we have a friend in Jesus or I have a friend in Jesus? What a friend we have in Jesus. Like, what an awesome song. What a friend we have in Jesus. Song comes on. What a friend we have. I'm thinking... If that's friendship, I'd hate to see enemies, right? <laughs> Looks like he's singing at somebody's funeral. What is wrong with us? Like something is broken. Something is broken. Right? We, we lack faith is what it is. We lack faith in the promises of God. We've taken our eyes off of his promises and instead we fix them on the Gentiles stomping us under their feet. If you write childish ditties, well, then you're going to become more childish, right? If you write nothing but moanful laments, and I'm not saying there's not a place for that. There's funerals, of course, right? And other things. But um, if that's all you got, and even the happy songs you turn into them, then you're going to become a bunch of dour, self-absorbed, therapy-needing, traumatized 
internally focused, navel-gazing Christians who just needs another ambient swell and a pep talk to get by by the week. No, no thank you. No thank you. So what we need, I really think, to restore this because you can't really restore it by a sermon, in my opinion. Like, I can give you a lecture. I can try to help you. What we really need is songs that are written with the right worldview. And since we're still trying to figure some of this stuff out, I'm not sure if we can trust our songs. We can a little bit. I think we're figuring out pretty well. But, you know, is there a place we could go where we know for certain that the right worldview wrote the song? The Psalms, okay, okay. At least we have some words that we know aren't going to shape us in a bad way. You see what I'm saying? That's why I think it's so important to sing the Psalms. I'm not saying exclusively, um, but I think if you're going to make a brick wall, right, anybody ever done that before? I have not, but Miss Paula has. Well, we, maybe we can use you out at the job site. <laughs> A short one. Hey, look, you know. Okay. Keep those children in, right? Or keep the predators out. Keep the plants in. Yeah, okay. Well, when you build a brick wall, you don't use a level on every brick, right? But you do use a level every, I don't know, six or seven bricks. You know, make sure that wall is going to come up straight, right? And so I think it's like that when we sing the Psalms. We have our hymns. We have other songs. But then, you know, we sing the Psalms and we, and it, and it, okay, a little to the right here, a little to the left, right? You know, not only your life, but maybe the songs you sing. I think that is a good illustration of what the Psalms can do for us. And you know what the Psalms are about? They're about a lot of things that modern day Christians have no clue about and no categories for. They haven't got the, they haven't used the level recently. And the, and the brick's done about to topple, okay? So listen to some of this. Just, I just pulled some, they're not random, but I pulled some particular psalms out because I want you to see how this could probably reshape your worldview. It could deconstruct some false ideas and give you a proper framework. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. I think heaven has them for all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. <clears throat> and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now, as a young Christian, verses like this were uh, quickly um, strained out. They were strained out, like I was uh, thinking with a colander, and those went right through. Right? They were like, uh, never mind, that's a, not an appropriate illustration. But let's just say these verses went right on through, no digestion, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, because they didn't fit my... Framework. They didn't fit my framework. So what you need to do, though, is receive them into your heart and mind and, and say, Lord, it doesn't fit my framework, and this is troubling to me because it means I'm going to have to rethink everything. And that's a lot of work. <laughs> and and I don't even really like Brandon that much. And so <laughs> could you send us a different preacher a donkey even, anyone than that guy. Because his personality just irks me, but he does have a point here. You've got to receive it. Don't stumble over me. And don't stumble over anyone that already believes this. That's a stumbling block, okay? Jesus was a nobody preaching to people. Uh, and, and that was a stumbling block for people. You don't want that to be a stumbling block for you. 
right? But let it go in and just say, God, this doesn't fit my mind and my framework, so go ahead and just burst my framework or show me where, what compartment this goes in, okay? And I do believe the Psalms will burst your wineskins. I really do believe they will. Because um, look, is this talking about after human history or during human history? Will there be marriage in, in heaven? Will there be marriage in the new heavens and the new earth? No, there will not be. This is right now. This is the future of our planet. This is not a different planet that we all escape to. This is not an ethereal, immaterial, spiritual realm where we go to when we die, though that does exist, called heaven. This is a prophecy of earth, the one that man was put on and man was given and commanded to take dominion over. The man, the second man, Jesus, will do it. He will accomplish it. And that gives me hope for missions, hope for evangelism, hope when I watch the news, hope for my children, hope for my descendants, makes me want to have more children. This is hope. You say, well, I look out at the world and I don't see it happening. Well, it's probably because all the Christians don't have any faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. If you don't have faith, you don't have victory. We're not automatons programmed by God. We've been given a mission. We've been given gifts. We've been given dominion. If you don't use them, you don't enjoy it. If you don't fight the giants, you don't get the promised land. That's why we don't see it happening around us, because Christians have no faith. We're wandering in circles. Oh, I'll fly away one day. I'll fly away. I don't mean to mock, but mockery is a good way to deconstruct bad ideas. So... Psalm 37, verse 9, here's another one for you. For evildoers will be cut off. You mean at the last judgment when they go to hell? Well, certainly that, ultimately that, for sure. But I don't believe that Jesus sat on a throne to rule over the nations, sent his spirit into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and justice, and then the devil's going to win. And all the evildoers are going to own everything. No, no. No, right? Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, you see, you gotta wait for the Lord. You gotta be patient. You gotta have faith. Hope against all hope sometimes. They will inherit the earth. That's Romans 4. That's the gospel that Abraham believed. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully to, for his place, and he will not be but the meek will inherit the earth and will delight themselves in the abundant prosperity. In an ethereal spiritual realm away from this earth? No, no. On this earth. What sort of abundant prosperity? Well, the Bible lists it. It's earth stuff. It's earth stuff. Wine at the top of the list. (laughs) Near the top of the list, I should say. So you can see how if we read the Psalms, and we rejoiced in the Psalms, and we raised our hands to the Psalms, how that would really burst some wineskins. Like visitors would come into our church, and be, they had never heard anything like this before. Are you kidding me? It would, it would discombobulate people. But I really do believe this is essential, and I think it's glorifying to God. 
And of course, there might be some of us tempted to have self-righteousness over this, which is another way of saying cage stage. Um, but that is um, just asinine. You know, we all learned this like last week, right? I, I've been trying to learn these things over the last 10 years or so to have self-righteousness and, and to feel yourself superior to those who haven't yet been taught um, the Bible is, is really missing the point. And you're actually, when you act in self-righteousness over things, you become a stumbling block for people who have small faith. So none of that, right? Let's look at Psalm 46, verse 8. We're getting that level out again. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. <laughs> he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. Amen. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Amen. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. <clears throat> Psalm 47.1. Oh, clap your hands, O oh peoples, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. <clears throat> and one last one, Psalm 66.4. All the earth will worship thee and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. You say what this means is a small remnant of each ethnic group will worship him. That is not the impression that I am getting. All right. The impression that the Bible gives you is, is put well when Jesus tells his disciples to throw their net on the other side of the boat. Right. Right. So, can we as Christians work as Eve to the second Adam, the mission given to the church, can we work to see this done? Can we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? That means heaven has been restored, his will is done in heaven, but heaven is coming down. And can we pray thy kingdom come? If we, can we pray that in faith? If we don't have this stuff worked out, we cannot. We have to have these things worked out so that we can pray thy kingdom come in faith. And then in faith, we can go out and be participants in that. I think that is absolutely essential. And it is what charges me in this, uh, this time of my life. So, amen? amen? Could Patrick have taken Ireland for Christ singing I'll Fly Away? Now, could Boniface chop down the mighty oak of Thor in front of the watching villagers, filling them with awe and glory toward the real and true God? Could he have done such a bold and faithful thing, a story written down for the ages? Could he have done that singing, this is all useless, this is a sinking ship, I'll fly away? No, no. These saints of old who wrote these old songs believe the gospel. And they believe this essential aspect of the gospel. 
And that is, I do believe, part of the energy, faith is the victory, that allowed them to transform large swaths of the world. We've lost it, right? We're trampled underfoot by Gentiles. But if we can recapture this aspect of the gospel, an essential aspect, and believe it in faith, I do believe things could be turned around. Amen? All right, y'all have a great Sunday.